This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. I would like to start out with a Jim Dandy quote from former President Harry S. Truman. Quote, My choice early in life was to either be a piano player in a whorehouse or a politician. And to tell the truth, there's hardly any difference. And speaking of politics, something's happened here in California. The Federal Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals has ridden to the rescue like the cavalry to save California from its own election circus. Well, it's sort of deliciously ironic that the Ninth Circuit apparently is using reasoning from Bush versus Gore, arguably the worst Supreme Court decision since 1858's Dred Scott that decided that a slave was actually property taken the same language, turned it around, and hoisted the GOP by its own petard. As Dr. Andy Jones would explain, what that means is it's blown up by its own bomb. No, we've talked about elections. We've talked about uh, ballots with Kim Alexander and Cosmo Garvin in past shows. We'll be talking about that subject again. And I would like to give you a preview of a very good investigative journalist, Mr. Jerry Polakoff, who will be appearing on this program in the weeks to come to talk about his recent research into the area of election machinery, election programming, and potential election fraud. that will be coming to you about two or three weeks from now. But I want to say right now, I think the argument, the reasoning being used in this argument is ridiculous. Punch cards work just fine. Sacramento County was one of these six counties that employs them. I've used them myself. If you're not trying to steal an election or actively stealing one, they work just fine. Thank you. We asked our our own gubernatorial candidate, the man we had on last week, Leonard Padilla, whether he thought his uh, candidacy would go forward. He figures that it's going to go to the Supreme Court. He believes they're going to overturn it, and he believes the election will be back on for October 7th. Well, we'll see. A bit of unexpected good news. It appears that this FCC effort spearheaded by Michael Powell, Colin Powell's son, to loosen media ownership rules and allow basically a few corporations to control the TV and print media in a given city, enables them to control media outlets that reach 45% of the public instead of 35 under current rules. This effort to concentrate the media is not going over well with the public and widespread opposition from people such as Jesse Helms and Walter Cronkite, from groups like the National Organization of Women and the National Rifle Association, has caught the attention of our elected officials. And it appears that this may very well be headed for defeat. By a vote of 55 to 40, the Senate repudiated this rule change, and people like Trent Lott, normally someone very much in favor of deregulation everywhere, is publicly saying now that he doesn't think this is the way to go. Amazingly, the Bush administration's response is that they might just 
override this. They don't seem to have a veto-proof uh, a disapproval going, and they may stand up to him. This would be a huge political mistake for George Bush, and uh, frankly, I hope he makes it. The Bush administration is also currently calling for an expansion of the Patriot Act. What do you think, folks? Sound like a good idea to you? In our second segment today, we'll be going to a very interesting interview that I just have been sitting on for months because I don't know what to do with it. In June, I think we mentioned uh, at the time, we were going to go down to Los Angeles to attend a commemoration of the 35th anniversary of the assassination of Senator Robert F. Kennedy. We aired an interview we conducted with William Turner, who wrote one of the best books on the subject of the assassination of Senator Kennedy. Uh, and it was very provocative and interesting. I hope you tuned into that. Uh, we're going to have Bill Turner on again. I'm confident of that. But while in Los Angeles, we were fortunate enough to be able to speak with Lawrence Teeter, the man who is currently the lawyer of convicted assassin Sirhan Sirhan. It was a very provocative and interesting interview, but I wasn't sure how to tie this into a public affairs program. Well, what I found out at the time was they're remaking the movie The Manchurian Candidate. And uh, this has now surfaced in The New Yorker magazine this week, September 15th, an article about the book and movie, and also in The New York Times outlining what is going down on this. We're going to go to our media correspondent later in this segment, Gary Chu, to talk a bit about this upcoming movie. And the tie-in to Teeter and the Sirhan case is that it might be contended that the case of Sirhan Sirhan has a great deal to do with this idea of programming and brainwashing and mind control. You, the audience, get to be the judge on this. I will let Mr. Teeter present his case, and you can decide how well he has made it. You really need to stick around for that, which we will go to in our second segment today. Now, uh, last week, the United States Congress committed $87 billion more to the basically unfunded war in Iraq. Yes, the federal budget last year earmarked no money for the war in Iraq. It's all being done off budget. Well, Congress graciously decided that it would give the Bush administration $87 billion more dollars. That was nice of them. I wonder if the 534 members of Congress are going to pass the hat to come up with $87 billion. Um, well, of course, they're not. When they say that they're going to fund it, what they mean is you and I are going to fund it. So what are we talking about now? $160 billion? We got an email from Chris asking me to try and tally up for the listener uh, just what that might buy in terms of hospitals, health care, uh, infrastructure, medical research, etc. And I don't even know where to begin. Um, I will try and do that, though, as a thought exercise in, uh, you know, down the road. I believe Ben Cohn of Ben and Jerry's fame did enumerate that at one point, and we'll, we'll try and find that. Uh, and in fact, you computer-savvy people, if you can find that for us, please do so and send it to us at info at radioparallax.com. We'd be most appreciative. And I, I know you guys hate when I do this, but I'm going to do it again. Uh, I promised you last week I would talk about Edward Teller this week. I'm not ready to do so. I want to tell you about Edward Teller in a proper context of what this man's life and now death means to us 
And uh, we're just too sh- we're just too pressed on time today, so I'm going to return back to it. Another story I don't have time to go to in depth that I need to check with our local sources on is this item from the B nine four three. UC Davis reverses on biolab warnings. Officials now say U.S. anti-terror limits on disclosure don't apply. So apparently, they now feel the UC Davis now feels that anti-terrorism laws would not prohibit them from directly notifying the public of the loss or release of dangerous pathogens from this proposed biolab on campus. Well, I think that's uh, that's awfully nice of them. By the way, did they ever find that rhesus macaque missing from the primate center? <laughs> Now, we criticized on last week's program the, uh, the ill-advised smallpox vaccination program that took place in this country, but I found here on the Reuters News Service, September 11th, apparently smallpox vaccine may help a person develop resistance to the AIDS virus. This is a very unexpected finding, but to actually make some sense biologically. But unfortunately, once again, we're too pressed for time. That one's going to be put off, but, uh, you know, I promise you, we'll return to it. All right, three quick items before we go to our media correspondent, uh, Mr. Gary Chu. Number one, Dan Lundgren has arisen from the grave. Yes, uh, Dan Lundgren, former state attorney general, the man who put Gray Davis in the governor's chair six years ago by running a completely inept campaign. Uh, Dan Lundgren, who sent state troops in to bust up Cannabis Buyers Club, wants to take Doug Ozzie's place as your congressman. Uh, There'll be a fundraiser held on September 25th at the home of insurance executive Rick Fowler. Special prosecutor Kenneth Starr will be the event's guest of honor. If there's anything we can possibly do on this program to keep Dan Lundgren from becoming your congressman, well, I, I really think we really ought to do it. And by the way, I still am a registered Republican. I just think that there's some guys that really shouldn't be in politics, and Dan Lundgren is one of them. All right, here's a quote I just uh, I had to go to, one of our last two items here, from a Reverend Paul Scott, founder of the Messianic African Nation in Durham, North Carolina. Quote, We should be building a nation of strong black leaders, not a nation of super-energized, drunk pimps. Commenting on the launch of rapper Nelly's new energy drink, Pimp juice. In in fairness to rapper Nelly, we should point out that the pimp juice that he's going to put out on the market is supposed to be non-alcoholic. But by gosh, we do agree with the sentiments of Reverend Paul Scott that we should not be building a nation of super energized drunk pimps. <laughs> Lastly, last week at the age of 101, Lenny Reifenstahl passed away. To those of you to whom that is not a familiar name, Lenny Reifenstahl is considered the patron saint of political consulting, the godmother of spin, as described by Martin Nolan of the Boston Globe. In 1932, a year before Franklin D. Roosevelt delivered his first radio fireside chat, Lenny Reifenstahl had already invented modern media politics. According to Martin Nolan, and I think most media people would agree, most of today's 30-second TV spots, TV political spots, echo triumph of the will. The 114 mesmerizing minutes of film she produced at a Nazi rally in Nuremberg in 1934. By all accounts, this was the gold standard 
of political propaganda. I have never seen Triumph of the Will, but in the wake of Lenny Reifenstahl passing away, I have ordered a copy and should have it within a few days. I'm going to look at it, and I'm going to report on what I see for you on this program. Lenny Reifenstahl was instrumental in the Nazis achieving the kind of power that they achieved in Germany. In the wake of the Third Reich being smashed, she also pioneered the technique of claiming, well, I was just following orders. Come on, I was just going along with what people were telling me to do. You know, that's what I think I'm going to want to watch with our media correspondent, Gary Chu. And speaking of Gary, let's go to him now to talk about the upcoming remake of a classic 1960s film, The Manchurian Candidate. Are you there, Gary? I am here, uh, and I hope I'm there, too. At least my voice is. Yes. Uh, Doug, and yeah, The Manchurian Candidate. Uh, looks like it's getting a little uh, talk. Uh, a little ink is happening, and... The New York Times and The New Yorker, and also uh, I think you mentioned to me that they're shooting a remake of it, and I've checked up on that, and Denzel Washington is going to be playing the Frank Sinatra role, Meryl Streep is playing the Angela Lansbury role, yeah. and uh, Lev Shriver is playing the Lawrence Harvey role, and I don't think anybody needs to worry about the Janet Lee role because that character in the movie was sort of a cardboard character for Sinatra to be able to talk to somebody uh, and they, they have a kiss for in that, uh, I guess, about 1959-type movie by John Frankenheimer, yeah. the great uh, director who died just uh, about in the past year. Yes, and I guess we're doing a Frankenheimer retrospective as part of why this was talked about in the New York Times. Mm-hmm. Um, I have been, I, I've known now for some months that they were going to do the remake, that it's in the works, and I've been looking uh, to use this as a reason to go forward, after I talk to you, with a pre-recorded interview from last June with lawyer Lawrence Teeter, which is going to be very interesting. But, I, but Who is Lawrence Teeter? Well, Lawrence Teeter is the lawyer for Sirhan Sirhan, who fir- believes quite firmly that there's more to the case of a Manchurian candidate than a book and movie that, that actually may describe much of what happened in 1968 to Senator Robert Kennedy. But I'm going to have to let Teeter tell that story because it's, it's one of those cases where truth is stranger than fiction. Yeah, and of course, uh, for those of you who are not familiar with The Manchurian Candidate, it's a Cold War film. So a lot of the audience will not be. So, Gary, tell us okay. a bit about the movie. Okay, uh, actually, it was uh, taken from a Richard Condon book, which did quite well. The movie flopped at the beginning uh, and was brought back in the late 80s and actually did pretty well. It was a movie that Frank Sinatra's production company did, and he got the uh, blessings, uh, ironically, of President Kennedy on this movie to actually distribute it because it has the assassination part of it in there and uh, because of that uh, Sinatra was sensitive to it well about uh, not long after this movie was released Kennedy was assassinated this was John Kennedy yes and uh, and then Sinatra pulled it out of distribution I think a year or two later and then it was brought back in the 80s but it's basically about guys getting brainwashed in the Korean War yes uh, and uh, Lawrence Harvey being the guy who's brainwashed and comes back to America and is controlled as an assassin as a programmed killer yes and I guess that's where the connection you're making with your program today with that film and this gentleman you're also interviewing about uh, who's the attorney, right? Gary, I'm proceeding with this with great trepidation because I think a lot in the audience are going to find this to be too fantastic to even begin to accept. And yet, mm-hmm. I'm going to let uh, the attorney tell the story and people can judge for themselves how preposterous they think it may be. May or may not be. It is certainly an interesting subject to me because I remember the evening Robert Kennedy was shot in L.A. I lived in Oklahoma at the time and worked in television. I had literally turned the television off 
about a minute and a half before it happened and heard Robert Kennedy's final speech after he'd won the yes. uh, one in California. Then I went to bed the next morning. I turned on the TV and realized that he had been shot right after I'd turned the TV off. Yes, terrible. I'll never forget it. I don't think any of us who were alive then will. I do find it interesting that that in this new version, in in the in the original version, as you mentioned, it takes place in the wake of the Korean War. Now, the idea of mind control, brainwashing, was a very new subject to the American public in the late fifties. This idea that you could program people, in effect, and the book and the movie make the bad guys the communists, the Chinese and the Russians, who mm-hmm. were basically both fighting uh, Western forces in the Korean Peninsula in the in the Korean War. Um, in the updated version, they're going to bring this up to Operation Desert Storm in place of the Korean War, and apparently Islamic fundamentalists are going to stand in for the Chinese communists in the brainwashing department. You know, one thing, a point to make about the actual initial story about the, the Manchurian candidate that Condon wrote in his book, it wasn't so much good guys and bad guys in the book, it was the, the people who were the manipulators and they were the people who were the manipulated. Yeah. And that's kind of the point of the book more where... The Hollywood version on film made it a little bit... Actually, it, the movie is very creepy and very interesting, and the first time I saw it... I just it, saw it, Gary, and I'm just and I'm creeped out all yeah, over again. Yeah, it's very creepy. Yeah, it is. Uh, but uh, if it were updated, and even updated and still using the Korean War as uh, and the Korean brainwashing aspect, I think it would be even more powerful because, unfortunately, we're having some problems with Korea today. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Korea is still reverberating in the headlines. I mean, yeah, it's well, like officially the war's not over. Well, I mean, this movie is about communist brainwashing, and yeah. these days, you know, there was a thing in the Onion. You know, communists now voted least threatening group in the United States. <laughs> and of course, the subplot to the movie is there's an anti-communist senator, and that the whole McCarthyism is reverberating yeah. throughout this film. But the part that I find so fascinating is that the movie makes the communists the bad guys, and yet. Forty years down the road, the the sort of mind control programs we know the most about were things that were being conducted by our own Central Intelligence Agency. Did you know that LSD was was being stockpiled and considered for use as a mind control agent in warfare? By the CIA? Yes. They decided it was too unreliable as it tripped people out to be useful to send in an invading army after after feeding everybody LSD, so it was abandoned. But before it was abandoned, tests were conducted on various volunteers here in California, including a man named Ken Kesey. I've read books by that guy. Yes, the, the author of the, well, the, the subject of the Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes a Great Notion. Wrote Sometimes a Great Notion, and, and of course his famous book is One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Mm-hmm. But l- perhaps people who are familiar with the movie don't realize he was also tripping across the country in a school bus painted with day-glow colors and American flags off the back, dropping acid and taking movie films every inch of the way, very much on the cutting edge of what became the counterculture of the 60s. Mm-hmm. And oddly enough, it goes back to it, him volunteering to be a guinea pig with CIA acid. I mean, the truth is indeed stranger than fiction. Well, did Kesey ever talk about that or write about that? Well, uh, it certainly comes up in uh, Tom Wolfe's description of Kesey's uh, Kesey's life in the early Mm -hmm. days, the electric Kool-Aid acid test, uh, which is a great read anyway. Sounds like we're recycling back around to the early 50s and moving back into those marvelous wild 60s. Uh, doesn't it sound a little bit very echoes of past eras? I don't know, yeah. Gary. I want you, This is actually too big of a subject to even like go into today. Let's, let's actually 
put it on hold and come back to it in a couple weeks. Okay. Because there's more to say on this topic, and I, Lawrence Teeter is going to long interview. I want to turn uh, turn this over to him. You actually, after this is all aired, you've had it. You haven't had a chance to hear what he's got to say. I'm going to let's come close. back. Let's come back and address it a few weeks down the road. Crazy. All right, we've got to take a break, and after we do, we will come back and play the interview with Lawrence Teeter, the attorney for the convicted killer of Senator Robert Kennedy, Sirhan Sirhan. You're listening to KDVS 90.3 FM. This is Radio Parallax. Yeah. 